Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verses 12 through 26, which is located in our church Bibles on page 862. Please stand if you are able as we read from the New Testament. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, who he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Please be seated. Let's come to prayer. Lord, we read in the Psalms, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished. <clears throat> I would have perished in my affliction. Father, these words, this Bible, this gospel, these promises and these hopes, these things that we're told are absolutely true. Lord, may they be our rock as we look to you. As we do face the afflictions of our lives, Lord, the testing, the dangers, the temptations, Lord, may we be guided by this word, this living word. We pray you would use these words this morning, Lord, in Luke's gospel to convict us to help us to examine the state of our own souls and to confirm in us uh, the work of Christ that we might build on the foundation that has begun. In Christ's name, amen. I remember sitting outside a church in New York City on the Upper West Side a number of uh, years ago, waiting for some friends. Uh, they were late, I was bored, so I conducted a small, totally unscientific experiment. I asked myself, could I distinguish Christians in the crowd from those around them? 
So specifically, I was looking at the subway stop at uh, 79th and Broadway, uh, and looking at the people who were walking towards me. I was sitting on church steps about 200 feet away, and I was asking myself, are, are Christians obvious? Is there a distinctive Christian look? Is there a way that Christians dress or a way they move or a way that they interact with those around them and show deference to others that makes them instantly recognizable? Uh, I even kind of cheated at one point because I wasn't doing too well and uh, said to myself, well, if they're carrying a book, that must be a good sign. And uh, the way I reckon this was that people who walked past me into the church, well, they must be some sort of Christian, and those who didn't weren't. I think I got, I bagged about 15, which means uh, I didn't even achieve a random uh, kind of number. So I think we can say definitively, at least from my perception, there's not a recognizable Christian look. I don't know if that's an encouragement to you or not. There is no age group, there's no manner of dress, there's no uh, ethnicity, there's no way of walking, there's no observably external distinguishing mark of the follower of Jesus if you were to try to pick them out of a crowd in that way. Well, when we come to the Beatitudes here in the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's important to see what Jesus is not saying. He is not, plainly not saying that Christians are visually obvious by how they look. There are so many of us from so many different places that God has worked on by his spirit. Nor is he, interestedly, do you see this here? He's not saying that real Christians will be immediately known, at least, by what they say they believe. He is saying real Christians with a true and living faith are known by how they behave. And that behavior we read here involves their daily choices, these blessings and woes. And if that isn't obvious in Matthew's gospel, which we'll be spending most of our time in, it is obvious in Luke. You have a choice as to what you do with how you behave. Now, you won't be saved by what you do, rescued. But in being saved by what Christ has done, if you are indeed his disciple and the spirit of Jesus is in you, you must do, you will do, the kinds of things he did and be known by them. So I think this is the question for us this morning, no matter where you are with God, is Jesus Christ of such an account to you that you will be recognized by your manner of living as one of his own? This is our first outing into the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain here in Luke uh, and that perhaps is one of the first questions, what's the difference between the two? I'm tempted to say about 30 feet, but essentially there's no substantial difference between these two accounts of the sermon. They're just different witnesses, different accounts, but of the same event and the same original material. What's the difference between a blessing and a woe? Well, a woe is not a John Wayne woe, it's an Isaiah woe. It is the opportunity you have to turn to what God is saying. So here are four recognizable qualities of Christian as Jesus gives them in the Beatitudes. States of blessing and states, as we've seen, of woe. First of all, what you need. Verse 20 and verse 24. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, but woe to you who are rich, 
for you have received your consolation. You probably know there's quite a debate about what this first poverty beatitude means. Wherever I've gone, I have found that if I teach or if this is taught in a middle class setting, inevitably the first question is of this beatitude, well, did Jesus really mean the economically poor? Because, well, we the rich would rather hold on to our money, thank you. But if you were to teach this in a village in rural Uganda or in perhaps one of the bombed-out towns of Ukraine, I'm not sure that there would be much question at all. They would immediately know that the blessing is for them. There'd be no questions but cheering, right? So Luke gives us a description of the kind of people who were there in that crowd that day and what they needed. They were the chronically sick. They were the demon-possessed. They were a great mass of a multitude of mankind, and most of them, from what we know of Judea at the time, were likely poor. And the debate about this isn't simple, even in Luke's gospel. You remember in uh, his hometown in, in Luke 4, Jesus comes to the podium and he quotes from Isaiah. He reads from the scroll of Isaiah, reading of Messiah, that his mission is to preach good news to the poor. But in Luke 5, he preaches the good news. Among the first people to receive the kingdom promise is a wealthy tax collector who Jesus welcomes into the kingdom. Who are the poor? Who are the poor in spirit who is so close to the kingdom? Well, someone has defined them in that context as people who, because of sustained economic privation and social distress, have confidence only in God. But for us, too, in our comparatively affluent society, the same goal is in view, right? The real Christian will be the one who doesn't treat what they have as being their own, but because of the mercy of Christ, they hold it loosely and they give thanks to God with a gracious heart. So unlike that person in the world who takes comfort or draws despair over what's left in their bank account, the Christian depends deliberately on what the Lord will provide, and they mean to do so by faith, not holding on to these things, but sharing them, again, because of Jesus. So if you can put yourself in the crowd that day, Maybe you can imagine Jesus saying to you, blessed are you if you need me. Blessed are you when I am what is uniquely of most value to you. Blessed are you when nothing in this world has proven satisfactory to you. And coming across me, well, it's like discovering buried treasure in your backyard. So this need is one of the first characteristics of what it means to be a Christian. Second, what you hunger for, verse 21 and verse 25. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. People will occasionally ask me why I left the UK, and one of the reasons, one of the reasons which I don't often disclose, is that I saw myself as a food refugee, trying to escape from bland, boiled, British food. And America, you know this, or you, if you don't know this, you should give amazing thanks for it, because it's in a remarkable way in which God has blessed this country, is the sheer amount of variety and abundance. I mean, there is nothing like 
an American grocery store, I think, in the rest of the world. And what's amazed me in my experience of food in the US is fast food in particular and the slogans for it. I often kind of in my mind's eye imagine someone pouring over an archaeologist looking at the remains of 21st century America and digging up an old rusty sign and wondering what did this mean? We have the meats. <laughs> he will doubtless conclude that we were a very hungry society but also that we were well satisfied. Again, if you put yourself in that crowd, if we were one of the, the thousands of people who had taken off work that day, or maybe longer, to come meet Jesus, you would be familiar with the experience of hunger, because even in coming to, to hear Christ, you would know if you didn't work that day, you would not eat that day. So Jesus is preaching to many here in this crowd who've made that choice. And I like how Eugene Peterson has this in the message version. He puts it this way, and it really gets at the, the idea of this. You are blessed when you are ravenously hungry because then you're ready for the messianic meal. So that's the force of this. God will satisfy the craving of those who are hungering for God's righteousness, which means for Jesus and for what Jesus wants as other people might hunger for a hamburger or hunger for their next shopping trip on Amazon. The world is all about immediate gratification. And we've done this. We have constructed a society where, where we can do this immediately. There is nothing that you want that you cannot immediately have. You have more power literally now at your fingertips than the most powerful of ancient emperors. But the people of God will wait to put off their feast day until they're sitting down to the banquet of Messiah. Now, it's not like God doesn't care for those who are physically famished. He plainly does. People who say he doesn't have not read the Bible. And we too should be driven by that same motivation. We are the showroom for what matters to him, whether it's salvation in Sudan or malnutrition in Bonaire. But this is the force of this. You can imagine Jesus saying these kinds of things. Blessed are you when you yearn for what I yearn for. Blessed are you when you choose to go and fast and to pray and to go out of your way to show mercy rather than feeding your face. Blessed are you when your food and drink, like mine, Jesus would say, is to do the will of the one who has called you. But woe to you who are content with living for your own satisfaction because one day you will be very, very hungry. With all we have and with all the ways we have to be satisfied, it's so easy, isn't it, just to live for ourselves. Here is a defining gospel ethic in our selfish, dark, dog-eat-dog -dog world. If your life has been shaped by the generosity God to you in Jesus, the one dynamic life change which should over-influence everything else is the gospel. The generosity of God to you, which influences, shouldn't it, what you buy and what you own and what, where you live and who you hang out with and what you give away. And so I think this question is profound for us in a way it probably wasn't for those who first heard it. Are we prepared to live simply so that others might simply live? Are we prepared to be shaped by the hunger for what Jesus desires in this life? Is there gospel in what you and I want? 
Thirdly, what you mourn, verse 21b and verse 25b. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. I watched a video this week, and I probably shouldn't have. It upset me. Of a Ukrainian woman, widow, who is um, taken in this video that's shown online by a, by a neighbor to a well on her own property. And she's escorted there by, by her neighbor. And she's taken there in real fear. And as she peers into this well, you can see her whole body convulses in terrible sorrow because at the bottom of the well, you see all of this, is the body of her son. Those are his shoes, she cries out, in utter grief. And only a heart of granite wouldn't be broken. Our tears matter to God more than we know. We all of us, I think, we carry around with this instinctively, this this image of an indifferent, callous God who really doesn't care about what happens to us and who callously, for his plan, puts on us all kinds of things which tear us apart. But the psalmist says, you have put my tears in your bottle. In other words, this does matter to him. And for his own reasons, in the grace of God, he has put off a time of judgment that many might yet be saved, but at huge sadness. Lest we forget, Isaiah called Jesus a man of sorrows, not a man of intense laughter. He wept twice that we know of in the Gospels. Once at the fact of death at the funeral of his friend Lazarus, and once over his rejection by Jerusalem. Not polite cosmetic tears, You can imagine for men in the culture what he did was probably embarrassing, but deep, heavy sobbing. I struggle uh, myself with apparent Christian smugness in a world of pain to which I know I contribute. You may know that bumper sticker that uh, declares to the world, not perfect, just forgiven. I don't actually think that's a biblical sentiment, at least in the way I read it. It smacks too much to me of a message of of self-satisfied security more than it does about the heart of God. And if you were to take a tour through the whole Bible on the topic of mourning, what you will find is that chiefly mourning has to do in Scripture with where God has been forgotten. Tears flow from my eyes, says the psalmist in Psalm 119, for your law is not obeyed. Your own people have forgotten it. They've put these things behind them. The world knows nothing of who you are. Now, that may not be firstly what comes to mind when you think of grief and mourning, but it really is the root and the base of everything else. If there is no God, if our God has been forgotten, then there is there's no answer to mourning, is there? There's no hope. There's no way to reflect on who we are and to do so in some hope of our own change. In 1740, the missionary David Brainerd wrote this about his life among the Delaware Indians. He wrote this just privately in his diary for October 18th. In my morning devotions, my soul was exceedingly melted by what he'd read in Scripture and bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness and vileness. Put that on your bumper sticker. That's not self-loathing. That's gospel conviction. And it doesn't lead to a a poor self-image, it leads to change, right? 
to repentance, to dealing with sin. That's the, the fruit of the joy of repentance that we actually change. So even in this veil of tears, joy in Christ should lead to sorrow over sin, which should lead then to greater amazement at God's mercy and glory. I was uh, telling uh, some of our officer candidates last weekend of the story of uh, the Cornish tin miner turned preacher Billy Bray, one of the most genuinely converted people in human history. Uh, to me, uh, he is a stark example to me of the way that each of us should be, the change that should be in a real Christian. He also happened to be one of the grumpiest men uh, who ever walked the planet and became, overnight, one of the most joyful. This is what he wrote. In an instant, he said, the Lord made me so happy that I cannot express what I felt. I shouted for joy. Everything looked new to me. The people, the fields, the cattle, the trees. I was like a man in a new world. They said I was a madman, but I was a gladman. And glory be to God. And that characterized his life. My friends, I think we take too lightly what has been given to us. And it has had at least for me, too little impact. We are to rejoice and to do so even amidst the tears. And lastly, what you suffer in rejection, verses 22 to 23 and verse 26. I don't know if you keep up with emerging policies on uh, social media. I do not, but I was reading that YouTube has been having lengthy ethical discussions over the last year plus about the future of its dislike button. I don't know if you'd come across this. You can imagine all the suits around the YouTube uh, boardroom at Google. Uh, they've made the decision after much deliberation to continue the dislike button under video posts. Uh, but they will allow only the creator to see how many have disliked his or her video. Others will not be able to uh, view it with disdain. This is a big deal because what are we about now as a society? We are about reputation to the point where being popular has become supremely important to us. To be liked is among the highest compliments that your people can ever give you. But Jesus says of his people, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And this being the culture we live in, we know they won't usually do this to our face, but you will hear about it, and it is deeply painful. But isn't this shocking? Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Still, I think that's the ambition of so many people, including people in the church, that people would speak well of them. For so their fathers did to the false prophets, said Jesus. It's a dangerous place to be. For some of you this morning, this may be the hardest part for you in following Jesus. And I'm not necessarily thinking of people of my age. I'm thinking of people in middle school and people in high school and people in college who are seeking to be genuine with their friends about their Christian faith. And it will be difficult. We should be praying for them. I remember being at a cocktail party in London a few years ago and my friend who was the host pointed me to the other clergymen in the room, uh, probably wanting to put the two socially challenged people together. <laughs> we were chatting, him and I. 
Uh, and without thinking it would be a problem, at some point I told him that for him and me, the priority issue, of course, was being loyal to Jesus. And he looked at me, and I'll never forget this, he looked at me with an icy stare of utter contempt and that told me that people nowadays are not comfortable with people who speak in that way. I was being handed my hat without even talking about what loyalty to Christ means. It's fascinating what's happening in our culture, even among those who claim to be followers of Christ. It was probably an insult, but it, it really didn't rise to the level of exclusion, at least not exclusion from something I didn't mind being excluded from. But it reminded me of three things. And I think we're to be reminded of these three things as we think of this cost, right? A, you will never be troubled by this if you never break out from the pack. If you have successfully compartmentalized your world so that what happens in here or in community group or at food pantry or wherever else is entirely divorced from what's happening out there, from what happens on Monday morning or what happens uh, when you get the family together or what happens with your friends at the bar. If you never break out from the pack, this will not worry you. Second, if you do say something about Jesus, you will be persecuted. And at that moment, I don't think we should necessarily think first for ourselves, poor pitiful me, but rather think of our brothers and sisters who, as we speak, are going through imprisonment and torture, and they are being killed because they refuse to disown the name of Christ in other countries. And thirdly, to remind to myself, to ask myself, sure, you can attract opposition to yourself at a gospel, at a cocktail party, but if it was a crime for you to be a Christian, would there be evidence enough to convict you? What does a Christian look like? Well, ultimately, Christians are just signposts, right? Not to ourselves, not to our churches, but as the name suggests, right? Little Christ, it was originally an insult, but that's what we are. We are signposts to Christ himself by what we do. How do we show the world what it means to follow Jesus? Well, we show by what we choose to do, including by what we choose to say. We choose to show that we need him. We choose to show that we hunger for what he hungers for. We choose to show that we mourn for what Jesus mourns for. And we show that we stand for what he stands for, even if it will mean rejection for his sake. So the Beatitudes of God spoken to his church to define who we are and who we will be this week. Let's pray. Lord, you have given us our marching orders. You have shown us what we are to be each of us who own the name of Jesus, we who have received so much and have been claimed, bought at a price, we are not our own. And as we belong to you, these are the things that are to mark us out. Lord, would you show us, give us wisdom, give us conviction, give us a prompting, Lord, a reminder this week as we're in situations where we can stand up for you or show that we need you or Show that we're grieving for what grieves you. Have an opportunity at that moment to say, Jesus, 
is the one who's most important to me. And so I'll stand with him. Depending on you, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.